Let's pray together. Father in heaven, speak to us now through your word as we worship here together. I pray that you'll use my voice and touch each one of our hearts and may we walk from here with your grace and strength to follow ever more closely to your example and your for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know this, that crucial conversations transform people. They transform relationships. That's what modern research shows. The way people handle crucial moments in their lives shape their lives. They shape their relationships. They shape the world. When it's the case that your opinions vary, maybe you see it this way, they see it another way. When your emotions run strong, when you may, you may feel misjudged, when the stakes are high, maybe it's your marriage and it's not working. When those three things come together, the impact of crucial conversations is huge. That's true in relationships. It's true in business. It's true in church. It's true in community. Today we're going to examine crucial conversations that I think may change your life. Last week... We began this journey that we're taking through the Bible, the greatest, the Bible's greatest stories. These stories are vehicles for God communicating with each one of us, communicating to us about how we are to grow in Him, grow in our experience with Him, in His goodness, in His grace, and that we might live even more appropriately and after His will. So today, we're going to look at three conversations one with Sarah and Abraham, another one with Abraham, and a third one with Lot. The first conversation begins with a siesta. Genesis chapter 18, if you like to look, or on the screen it'll be there. A siesta begins, and um, Abraham is at the door of his tent, his home-pitched tent, and he's at the Oaks of Mamre. But instead of inside napping, Abraham is watching. He's waiting. God has appeared to him three times, and I'm not sure whether he's expecting another appearance, but it may be, because it's only been weeks, maybe just a few months, that God had appeared maybe in this very spot. It was somewhere close by anyway. And so he was at the, his tent's door, and God is about to make a fourth visit to Abraham. Genesis chapter 18 and verses 1 and 2. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the earth. Now, I don't know what Abraham's thought was. Maybe he had an inkling that this was a special visit. Maybe he had an idea that, that these were supernatural beings. I'm not sure. He does call the leader my Lord, but that's not a word that's always used only in reference to God. It's used even more often in, in normal conversations. 
<clears throat> what Abraham does then is a memorable picture of hospitality. You know the story. He hurries. He's, he's quick about it. He, um, he bows low, and then he invites them to sit and rest under the oak trees. He gives them some refreshing water, a foot washing, and then he goes to get others to help him with a meal. Uh, it's not a quick meal. In fact, it's, it's a banquet of a meal, you could say. He goes to Sarah, asks her to make some bread, and Sarah uses, it says in Scripture, uh, chapter number 18 of verse 6, he uses three sias to make the bread. Now, I make bread occasionally, and uh, one quart of dry flour will make about one loaf of bread, for me anyway. Three sias was 60 quarts. You figure that out. And then he goes to his servants and has them butcher and cook a calf. And then the meal is set before them. And while they're enjoying the banquet, Abraham stands like a servant. You can see that in verse number 8. And although this isn't the main point of the story, it deserves just a brief comment. Abraham's act of courtesy at this important moment in his life is enough to be memorialized in Scripture a thousand years later. When Paul writes in the book of Hebrews, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality even to angels without knowing. This is, this is Abraham here, memorialized. Although COVID has paused it, made it difficult, may we be like Abraham. May we be like Abraham and treat all people with respect, courtesy, honor, whether they're an angel or whether they're a human being. May we be like Abraham. Well, more than a meal happens, more than hospitality happens, and it seems that with hospitality and a meal, something special. It's the first crucial conversation verses 9 and 10 Genesis 18 then they said to him where is Sarah your wife so he said here in the tent and he said I will certainly return to you according to the time of life and behold Sarah your wife shall have a son now Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him look carefully at this verse if you would with me for a moment up to this point the voice from these men has been plural, they. But now it's he. They said, then he said. The person speaking now is the pre-incarnate God, Jesus Christ, come to earth before his first coming. And Sarah is listening. She's listening from the tent behind, and she's skeptical. She laughs at this unbelievable promise. Her, Abraham, it's only been weeks before, maybe a month or two, not much time anyway, since God's third visit. This was his fourth. His third visit, God changed Abram's name from Abram to 
Abraham, father of a multitude. And he changed Sarai's name from Sarai to Sarah, princess. So, um, and made a promise that before one year was up, that she would have a child. Amazing promise. Amazing hope. And Abraham, on that occasion, with that visit, he laughed. He laughed. That's what Scripture says. Because it was an unbelievable promise. How could that ever happen? But now Sarah, it's her turn. She's listening from the tent, out of sight. And in, she has the same response that Abraham had. If you look in verses 11 and 12, it says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? So Sarah thinks about what she's just heard. She says, I'm worn out. She says, the way of women has stopped for me. And it says, Sarah laughed, and it says, within herself. In other words, it's just kind of a, a chuckle inside. Nothing comes out her voice. An inner chuckle. No one hears it except God. Except God. He's the only one who knows the secret of every heart. Psalm forty-four twenty-one. He's the one who searches hearts and minds. Revelation 2, verse 23. He's the one who is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Then it says, verse 13 and 14 of Genesis 18, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I'll return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said... Yes, you did laugh. Not a good thing to argue with the Lord. (laughs) The visitor couldn't see her. The tent was behind him. That's what it says in verse number 10. But God knew. God knew. This miraculous capacity to know what Sarah alone could know this giggle that comes from within don't you think it created a bit of wonder in her heart thinking who is this that's speaking to me maybe this is this one who knows who has the capacity to know what only I can know maybe he can accomplish something that's beyond human accomplishing she thinks Then comes the question that has echoed through the ages, and it's the crucial conversation. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is a thought that's been repeated forever. In the book of Isaiah, uh, the prophet says, God speaking through him to through him in Isaiah 50 verse 2. Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength 
to rescue you? And Jeremiah affirms it. He says in Jeremiah 27, 17, Ah, Lord, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you, Jeremiah says. And then God affirms that a few verses later in verse 27 of Jeremiah 27. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Mary, the soon-to-be mother of Jesus, was encouraged with the same words when the angel said to her, for nothing is impossible with God. Luke 1, 37. And when the disciples are thinking of the impossibility of their own future after just seeing a, a perfect disciple walk away discouraged, hear Jesus say, with men, this is impossible. Salvation. But with God, All things are possible. I want to ask you this morning, friend in Christ, whether you're here in the sanctuary or wherever this finds you today, what challenge of faith are you facing? What burden have you carried to this very moment of your life? What crucial question do you have? Your answer to this question will change everything. I want to just ask you this morning, do you think the hurdle to the answer to to your question is too high? Do you think it's too difficult, too great? Do you think your health is too compromised? Do you think that your relationship with your child, with your spouse, with someone is, is too broken? Do you think that your child is too rebellious? Do you think that your finances are just too upside down? The village pastoral staff joined with other pastors throughout the Upper Columbia Conference this week for our winter meetings. It was virtual, so I did it from my basement, and others did it from their homes all across the Upper Columbia Conference. And the first morning our devotional was shared to us by Pastor Lloyd Perrin, pastor of the Milton Freewater Church, the the lead pastor there. And then many of you know his story. You know what happened to him three years ago when a brain bleed from a tumorous growth left his right side paralyzed. You you know that. You know his story. And after MRI, it was determined that The cancer was growing everywhere in his body. Everywhere. The doctor gave him three months to live. Last Christmas, well, Lloyd underwent aggressive chemotherapy and physical and occupational therapy. And as you know, he resumed full pastoral responsibilities and he's serving this morning, preaching this morning from Milton Freewater. He is really, I call him my hero. That's what he is. And he was pronounced cancer-free one year ago Christmas. I have to say, praise the Lord. Now, I won't presume to know what God's plan is for your life. And I don't know what challenges you face. And I can't guarantee you that you're going to experience the same outcome as Lloyd Perrin did. But... If you face 
something impossible, something that appears to be beyond your managing. If you will place that in God's hands, He will bring you through. He will bring you through. He will help you. He will sustain you. He will support you. He will give you divine strength. He will give you divine wisdom. Or like I love to remember how Mike Talley said, he'll give you something even better. He will. God's question to Sarah is a question to you and me today. It's a crucial conversation. And I want to ask it of you this morning. Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for Him? This faith in God, this faith in the God of impossibilities grew in Sarah's heart right then, right there. These words from God's secret knowing about her her laughter. These words about his knowing strengthened Sarah's heart and her belief grew. And in the book of Hebrews, it says this, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 and 12, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the age because he judged, she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, And him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky and the multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Yes, God's omnipotent power. God works things, no matter what they may appear to us, according to the counsel of his will. So I want to ask you this morning, as you worship this day, Is there something that you need? Is there something that appears impossible to you? Is anything too hard for God? God can do it. God is strong to save. God is kind to help. He's good to heal and restore. But the question comes up, and this is the second crucial conversation. He may be powerful, But is he always good? Can we always trust his will and his way? And that's the essence of the second conversation that we come to in this same passage. It says in Genesis chapter 18, verse 16, the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. Two angels leave. Abraham is left in the presence of the pre-incarnate God. And for a moment, we're privy to a divine counsel. Notice it in verses 17 to 19. Should I hide my plans from Abraham? God is speaking. For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Right here, God is wondering out loud. He's thinking out loud, and we're able to listen in to his thoughts. And I think maybe Abraham could listen in too. But he's certainly speaking for us. And he says, should I tell Abraham... What's planned for Sodom and Gomorrah? Now the question is rhetorical. God doesn't hide his purposes. 
God never hides his plans. It says in in his word that he reveals them to us. He reveals them so that he can show us that his ways are true, that his ways are just, that his ways are merciful and compassionate always. But God singled out this man, this Abraham. He singled him out for for caring, for a life-transforming relationship. And not just for him, for Abraham alone, but Abraham is to be the communicator, the transferer of God's goodness, of his righteousness, of his way, of his justice to others. That's God's plan through Abraham. From Abraham to his sons, to their family, to their families, and families after that. And on it goes to today. This calling that God has for Abraham to lead his family in God's way. For Abraham to live out God's goodness. For Abraham and his family to live out God's justice and his mercy and his righteousness as a display. And be a conduit of his knowing that all the world might be blessed by knowing it. That is God's plan. By by the way, That's God's calling to you and me. That's God's calling for us to go into the world, to tell others about him, his message for us, his message of salvation, to be a conduit ourselves of his love, of his care, of his saving grace, of the eternal future that he has for us. To to do that, to do that, to be that conduit, we've got to be like Abraham and know God. And so God opens up this council room of his thoughts to us so that we might know him. Not just know of him, but really know him. Verses 20 and 21 in Genesis 18. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard the great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. Does God need to know? God already knows, doesn't he? Sodom and Gomorrah's situation is not a mystery to God. He knows, but Abraham and every one of us, we're the ones who need to know. We're the ones who need to know that God's ways are not arbitrary, that God's ways are always clear, they're always transparent, and they're always just. They're always true. They're always righteous. He has no hidden agendas. He has no contradictory motives. He has no false assumptions that he's trying to lead us into. He invites us, come and see my ways. Come and understand my judgments. He opens up to us reason. He says, come, let us reason together. The sins of Sodom have reached full measure. They're at the breaking point. There is no other possible end. No other course of action can be taken. They will be judged. They will be punished for their sins. But God is merciful. He's merciful. But make no doubt, 
there's a time of judgment. There's a time of judgment for God, Sodom and Gomorrah and for you and me. It says in verse number 22, the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. I love that. Abraham standing before the Lord. And now the second crucial conversation. Genesis 18, 23 to 25. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's a question for the ages. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? He answers his own question. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you! Exclamation point. And then this statement that echoes to us. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Here's Abraham's argument. If God expects justice from Abraham, surely he must do justly himself. It would be wrong to kill the righteous with the wicked. Surely, Abraham says, surely the judge of all the earth must be good, must be righteous, must be holy, must be true, must be merciful. Can Abraham trust God to do what's right. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That's a question. That's a question that has immobilized so many people for so many years. Some of you today are struggling with that deficit yourself. You don't know what to think of it. You're not sure, for sure, that God can really be trusted. Will he really do what's right? I mean, right for you. Right for you all the time. Is he good? Is he good all the time? To you. And you look at your life and you look at others that you know and you think, wow, he seems to be a bit inconsistent. Things seem to be a bit uncaring. Of course, for Abraham, he was thinking not just of himself, he was thinking of his his nephew, his nephew Lot and his family. And that's what you're thinking of as well this morning. Thinking of your family. Thinking of your friends. Thinking of how God has worked in their life, in your life. Abraham's already risked his life once to save Lot. Now he'll risk his life again as he intercedes with the judge of all the earth. He boldly negotiates. I love this. He boldly negotiates the number of righteous that would prevent God from destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Would 50? 45? 40. What if there are 30, God? What if there are 20? Then finally, verse number 32, for the sake of 10, God says, I will not destroy it. 
I will not destroy it for the sake of chain of ten. Now, I ask you, has God changed his mind because he's been negotiated with by Abraham? Has God decided, no, I won't do it for 50. I won't do it for 40. You've changed my mind. No, no, I don't think so. If that were the case, then the God of all the earth is not up to the job. No, he's the sovereign judge of the universe. But Abraham needs to grow. (laughs) He needs to grow in his understanding of God, of this sovereign judge. He needs to grow in his understanding. And, And as he learns, he's reassured. God is good. God is just. You know, it seems to me that most of us would be well served with a similar conversation right now. Right now. We have ideas about God. We have ideas about him, about who he is, about how he is, about what he does, what he's about, why he does what he does, and why he doesn't do what we think he ought to do. We have, we have all sorts of things in our mind. And honestly, I can't help but feel that we're skewed with all sorts of false ideas. Every one of us. Nobody has a clear picture of the Almighty God. Don't think that you do. Our minds are polluted from sources that are outside the truth. We think he thinks like us. We think he votes like us. We think he stands for things that we stand for. I'm under the growing conviction that too much of what we understand about God has come from other people, not from him. I like what author, pastor, and advocate for God, Timothy Keller, has said. Tell me the God you don't believe in because chances are I don't believe in that God either. I'll say it again. Tell me the God you don't believe in because chances are I don't believe in that God either. Some of us are troubled today. Troubled Because the picture that you see of God, that you see of him at work, it it just, it seems uncaring to you. It seems unkind to you. It seems unfair to you. He appears to you to want more than he gives. He appears to you to require more than you can possibly give in return. He appears to you to ignore things that he should never ignore. Some of us are looking at Abraham's question and we need to ask our own. Our own of God. And I'm saying we don't need to ask others. We don't need to look at what they say about him. We need to ask God what he says about himself. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, we'll never understand the riches of God's character from news feeds, from blogs, from podcasts, and social media. We will never. It'll only come from Him through His Word, by His Spirit, and through that Spirit working in us, and by godly interaction with people who are believers, whom you know, can see, and talk to, who will hold you accountable, and you hold them accountable as well. It comes through the ministry of the towel, as we serve and give in Jesus' name. That's how we grow to know who he is. We struggle because we struggle because life isn't going as we think it should. We, we struggle because we feel as though God should make it different for us. My challenge to you is talk to God about that. Have a crucial conversation with him. And if we can help you as pastoral staff here at Village Church, I invite you. We are eager to assist. Well, the two angels leave Abraham and God at the trees of Mamre late that afternoon. And by dusk, they're in Sodom, which is interesting because it's a two to three day journey, which tells me they didn't walk. And Lot is at the gate when they arrive. Genesis chapter 19 now, verse 2. My lords, he said, this is Lot speaking to the two angels, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night, and then you can go on your way in the morning. So Lot appeals to them, urges them, challenges them, please come to my house, retire for the night there. There's, and before the night is up, there's trouble at Lot's door. Verse number four of Genesis 19. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. Who's there? Everybody. Not a few. Everybody is there. And they're corrupt. Their corruption is pervasive. They want to do harm to Lot's guest. And every resident is complicit. The city is evil to the core. Lot negotiates with the Sodomites and his tactics, you can read them, they're deplorable. They're deplorable. He offers, I hate to even say it, his two daughters in place of the guests. It's a despicable, appalling heinous gesture. It seems as Lot as, is as bad as the people outside his door. And the angels begin their mission of judgment. But not before they deliver Lot and his family. Verses 12 and 13 in Genesis 19. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, or whomever you have in the city. <clears throat> 
Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Wow. Now Lot attempts to convince his two daughters' fiancés. They must be right outside the door with the rest of the crowd. They're as depraved as the rest of the city. They don't take Lot seriously. You can, you can read it. I'm not going to look. You can read it. I don't want to even read those verses. They are so challenging. They need to be read alone. The gravity and urgency of the situation eludes them. They don't see it. And unfortunately, it's probably because Lot also seems preoccupied. He lingers over his life in Sodom. He thinks he must be thinking about his home, his possessions, his ambitions, his, his plans, his, what was, what might have been. It's all coming to shambles. And he hates to leave it. He hates to leave it. Finally, according to the scripture, the angels grab Lot, his wife, and their two daughters and rescue them. Four hands for four people. Even though these righteous ones hardly act like it. They barely, barely escaped annihilation. And Lot is still remiss. Catastrophe is about to overtake Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot Lot argues about the escape route. I still can hardly imagine it. He bargains with God the same way he'd bargained with Abraham about where he was going to live. What land he gets. And he looks up the mountains. They're way too rugged, he says. His constitution is way too fragile. He pleads for a little city, Zor. And when he arrives there, the earth erupts. Genesis 19, verse 24. The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from, from, from the Lord out of the heavens. Burning sulfur rained down on those cities and there was no escape. The region has never been the same. You look at it today, not a thing grows. Even today, the vegetation has never recovered. In Genesis chapter 19, verse 26, amazingly, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. They're running for their lives, running to escape. And the angel has warned them, saying, do not look behind or stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Verse 17. But she looks. And it's not just a gl- glance. It's a gaze. That's what the word in the Hebrew suggests. It's a look. She, she already misses the place. <laughs> she already misses her friends, 
her neighbors, her lifestyle, her entertainment. She feels like she was, she's losing part of herself, part of herself that she doesn't want to lose. She'd like to have the past linger just a bit longer. And so she becomes frozen. Frozen as a pillar of salt. Almost saved. Almost delivered. Almost set free. Almost a fresh start. Almost a new beginning. Almost. Some of us are in Lot's wife's place right now. Some of us. And this conversation, this crucial conversation, is for you and me. Not just for Lot. Not just for his wife. You've thought about committing your life to God. You've thought about it. You've contemplated it. Many, many times you've thought about it. But there's always seems to be an excuse. Always something. Some obstacle. Some roadblock. Something that makes you shrink back and say, no, not now. God is appealing to your heart right now. God is appealing to your heart. Mighty, mighty angels are urging. Mighty angels are holding your hand. Mighty angels are affirming your decision for the Almighty to keep your eyes on Him. No, not all your questions are answered. I know. Not everything is clear. I know. But isn't it clear enough? Isn't it clear enough? At daylight the next morning, Scripture says that Abraham stands on the spot, the very spot he'd pled with God the day before. Genesis 19, 28, 29. Then he, Abraham, looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Lot was saved. And certainly not because of his goodness or anything that he merited, but the, for the sake of righteousness, Abraham's righteousness. Now Lot's story began, think of it, I'm just going to briefly go over this. Lot's story began a lot like Abraham and Sarah's just the day before. Think of it with me just for a moment, okay? It began with a visit from messengers from God. Same with Abraham. Lot, Abraham. The final episode in Lot's story also parallels theirs. Both Lot and Abraham and Sarah wind up with children. Both of them do. But the difference can't be more dramatic. Think of it for a moment with me. With Abraham and Sarah, they have a child, but it's miraculous, miraculously born. It's a miraculous happening. It's a divine intervention to an aged couple that couldn't possibly have children. Impossible. But God makes it happen. Why? Because nothing's too hard for God. 
That's why. But Lot's story, think of it with me just for a moment. God isn't even a factor. (laughs) He's not even mentioned. In fact, he's far from it. It's a deplorable, shameful result of an incestuous daughter. That's how he has a grandchild. Our child. For Abraham and Sarah, it's an occasion for wonder. It's an occasion to marvel at God's work. But Lot's daughters, they rely only on themselves. It's their own plan, built from falsehood, built from a theory of conspiracy. They lie to themselves. They say, we're alone. We're the only inhabitants on planet Earth when their home alone is the one that's been destroyed. It's like the plans they had for marriage, the children, the preserving of their family, their lineage and whatnot, all was consumed in Sodom's destruction. That wasn't the truth. That wasn't the case. It's, it's conspiracy. It's not true. The rest of the planet is alive. Abraham's family is alive. That's Uncle Abraham or something anyway. They don't even have to consider anything more than that, but they don't even think of it. Instead, Lot's daughters think of incest. They prefer intrigue. They prefer drunkenness and shame. It's like they're still in Sodom. God has saved them. God spared them. God's honored them. But they choose the lifestyle of Sodom and give birth to two sons that will be forever opposed to the things of God. You read it. The Moabites and the Ammonites. Lot's children. I have to say, some of us are in that spot right now. Some of us are right there today. Right there. And it's a spot of our own choosing. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be that. God has spared you. He spared me mercifully, graciously from death and destruction through Jesus Christ. He's pulled me. He's pulled you from the wreckage, hasn't he? He has. He's pulled you from the wreckage of sin and self-destruction and relationship-destroying ways. He's pulled you salvaged you and he offers you hope and meaning and an eternal future but our minds are still on Sodom we're toying with we're coddling shameful destructive unself I'm selfish unhealthy stuff we might be out of Sodom but Sodom is still in us destroying us. My challenge to you, turn from it. Turn from it. God is speaking to you. Don't look back. Turn from it. There's nothing there but eventual hardship and pain. Turn from it. God's hand is urging. God's hand is drawing. God's hand is helping. Lot has reaped what he's sown. Years before, he chose Sodom even though he knew it was not a good choice. And now he reaps two sons, 
two son-in-laws who never respected him, a wife who loses her faith in God and doesn't survive Sodom, and two daughters whose heritage is created by incest and drunkenness. That's Lot. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go today? It's a crucial conversation. I didn't create it. God did. And the consequences are weighty. The consequences are eternal. Listen, friend, let me ask you, listen, whatever you face, nothing is too hard for God. Is that true? Whatever you face, nothing is too hard for God. Listen, friend, the judge of all the earth, is he true? Is he just? Is he good? Is he kind? Is he merciful? Is he gracious? Is he forgiving? I didn't hear a single amen. The God of all the earth is all those things. Trust him. Don't trust what anyone else says about him. Trust him. And don't look at the pictures that other people are making of him and about him. He's pulling you from the wreckage. The wreckage of life without him. In Jesus, he offers hope, salvation. Don't resist. Say yes today. And steep and filled with pain 
So if your sky is dark and pours like rain, then cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, and live. Oh, when the love spills over and music fills the night, and when you can contain your joy inside, then dance for Jesus, dance for Jesus, dance for Jesus, and live. And with your final Kiss the world goodbye, then go in peace and love on glory's side, and fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, fly to Jesus, and that we can come to Jesus. That your arms are open wide to us right now. That there's nothing too hard for you, Lord. Whatever things we are facing, whatever challenges we may have, you can handle them. Right now we want to put them in your hands. And Lord, you are just. You are true. You are the judge of all the earth and you're worthy of that responsibility. So we thank you for that. We know that you will do good for us even when it doesn't look so good according to our own thoughts because we know that your ways are better than ours and we'll trust you in that. And finally, Lord, you've pulled us from the wreckage, from sinful ways, from self-centered ambitions, from all the things that destroy and hurt and harm. But we cling to those things so much. We, we lust for them even though we know that they hurt us. Lord, we're turning from those today. You've pointed out by your Spirit things in our own hearts <clears throat> that are not, not right, not good, not true, not what you would have. We're turning from those today and we're turning to you and we thank you for the salvation you give us in Jesus' name.